Well, you're preparing to see family and friends over the holidays. You're preparing for your gatherings together, and maybe some people you haven't seen in a while, and different things have happened, experiences, maturing time, and one of the questions that sometimes you, you think about, or at least I do, is like, uh, what's it going to be like? Um, how's it going to go? Will they be the same? Will they have changed? How's our relationship? Has it changed? What's that meeting going to be like? And well, somewhere after my sophomore year of college, I went out west to work and for a couple months, and I returned from my fall semester, and my former roommate and I got back together, and after about 30 minutes catching up, he looks at me and says, well, you hadn't changed. And I didn't know whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. I just kind of hung in the air, and I wasn't sure what to make of it, but there's a huge question that you and I have and sometimes we don't actually utter it or articulate it, but it's back there. It's, is Jesus the same toward us now in his exalted state as he was on earth in his humble state? Is the crowned Jesus, the conquering Jesus, does he have the same heart for us as the Jesus of Christmas, the Jesus of the cross? Has he left it behind or is his gaze, affection, heart for me the same? Two weeks ago, we looked at Revelation 12, the woman, the dragon, and the baby. My very favorite Christmas passages over the last few years, and in that passage, two weeks ago, Jesus is caught up to heaven. He ascends to heaven, having accomplished that dragon-crushing work of his earthly ministry. Then last week, Jeremy preached a very good sermon on Revelation 5, the, the lion and the lamb. And Jesus, now ascended, enters the throne room. And we get a little window into the Holy of Holies, the heavenly sanctuary throne room, when Jesus ascends to glory. And as the lion, the lamb, ascends and is in the center of the throne with the ancient of days, the question goes out from the throne of God, who is worthy to take this scroll? And the silence is deafening because no one in heaven, earth, or under the earth is equipped, is capable of taking that scroll and putting it into effect, which, as Jeremy so well said, is God's plan for everything and for you. It's the covenant of grace. And so John just breaks down weeping, weeping. And in John, we weep if no one puts it into effect. But then that lion, that lamb as slain, strides forward and reaches out his hand and takes the covenant document. And when he takes that scroll, there's this cascade of praise as Psalm 126, you have turned my 
weeping into singing my tears into songs of joy and beginning with the redeemed and extending outward to embrace all of creation, there's this glorious singing in heaven upon the entrance of the sun to glory to take the scroll. And today, although we're bouncing around chapters, there's an order. We're looking at chapter one of Revelation, and chapter one of Revelation, we see the ascended Christ and his ongoing ascended ministry, what he does now on your behalf, and we get to look at it a little bit more. Jeremy said very well that Revelation's message is beautifully clear. It's that Jesus wins. And we can add to that, Jesus enables his church, he enables you to win, to overcome, to conquer right now. That's what he's doing on our behalf in heaven as he enables and empowers his church. He's going to speak to seven churches and the seven letters are coming up. And to each of the seven churches, he says, to the one who overcomes. And so the context of Revelation is that God's people are suffering, they're struggling, life is hard. John is on Patmos. It's a little island in the Aegean, but it's no vacation. He's on Patmos because it's this inhospitable island. It's the Alcatraz of Rome. You can't get off. It's a concentration camp. The oldest commentator on Revelation, a guy named Victorinus, said John is in prison working the mines on Patmos, an old man working the mines. He's doing so for the word of the gospel. So John is is concerned for the churches and he's knowing that suffering has come with Nero, it's going to come, it might be going all right then. And so Revelation is God encouraging and exhorting his people to overcome in the face of trial and persecution from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and in the face of that temptation and pressure to conform and compromise with the world. So the question is how, how do we overcome? How, what's most important? And chapter one makes abundantly clear that what's most fundamental is that we need to see Christ, always. And so a commentator, Richard Brooks, said it this way, what we need at all times, and most especially in times which call for particular endurance, is a view of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is. And today, that's what you need most of all. And so let's read Revelation 1, chapter uh, chapter 1, verses, do I have my glasses anywhere? Ah, here we go. Revelation chapter one, verses uh, nine through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, 
was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Theatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest the hairs of his head were white white like wool like snow his eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters in his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength and when I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead but he laid his right hand on me saying fear not I am the first and the last, and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this, and for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but this word endures forever. Hark the herald angels sing, one of our great marvelous Christmas carols, has this wonderful stanza where it says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, amazing. And it's the grand miracle of the incarnation. We see God in flesh in a way that we could appreciate. It was in our realm. What would God be as a man? In Revelation chapter one, we see God the Son ascended, exalted, glorified. So Sinclair Ferguson says it well. He goes, which of the gospels gives you a description of Jesus? Is it Matthew or Mark or Luke or John? Do you get a description of Jesus in any of those gospels? Which one is it? And you know, we know the answer because we want that description, but we don't get it. Like we don't get a description of Jesus in any of the gospels. The closest thing we get to a description of Jesus is found in Revelation chapter one. And so when you think of Jesus, you, know, you can't help but think and imagine, does this come into your mind? And it's not a photo, it's not a portrait of Jesus, rather it's a symbolic portrayal, it's a pictorial 
display. Ferguson calls it an impressionist painting. If you artistic people that like impressionist paintings, all those little strokes that don't present reality exactly like it looks, but rather present it as it is, conveying this sense, this, this feel from that picture. And so we have this presentation of Christ and its theological significance as the ascended Lord. John paints him not by brush strokes or paint colors, but by scripture strokes and scripture images principally drawn from that wealth of Old Testament imagery, some 1,000 allusions and parallels. And he's painting his significance for us in the way we desperately need it as the church in this fallen world. And so he's like a son of man. He's like a son of man. Not exactly, but like. He's, in his, in his earthly ministry, it was his humility, like he's one of us. And yet here we see he's the Daniel 7 glorified one like a son of man who ascends the throne of the ancient of days and is presented with, as Daniel 7 says, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He gets the kingdom And so what Daniel saw as something future, John now sees as something present. Jesus has now ascended to the ancient of days. He has received the kingdom when he received the scroll. He's trying to tell us that he is the king that puts it all into motion. And then he's the one that wears this long robe with a golden sash around his chest. It's this brilliant apparel of the Old Testament high priest drawn from Exodus 28. Jesus ascended. What he's telling us, that theological significance is that Jesus ascended to the true holy of holies as our true high priest because the earthly holy of holies was just a copy of the heavenly true reality of it and Jesus having offered his sacrifice then had to ascend to present it even as the high priest offered the sacrifice then took the blood into the holy of holies to present it. Jesus does that and he remains there as our high priest interceding on our behalf by his blood. He's the high priest and the sacrifice. The hairs of his head are white, like white wool, like snow. It's that, again, Daniel 7 description of the ancient of days who sits upon this throne that Daniel's given this vision into the heavens. And the ancient of days has hair white as snow, like pure wool. And so that whiteness portrays God's holiness and his purity, his, even his eternity. So Daniel wonderfully ascribes, Daniel ascribes to God. What Daniel describes to God, John now ascribes to Jesus. He's God himself. 
And his eyes are like a flame of fire. It's this wonderful picture from Daniel 10. This figure presents himself to Daniel who has eyes like flaming torches. The point is that like God himself, he sees everything. Nothing can be hidden from his penetrating gaze. He, as the birth narrative says, divides or penetrates to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And Jesus, as the word, is able to do what the word alone does, expose the thoughts and intentions, Hebrews 4. And his feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. It signifies this moral purity. And the fact that it's refined in a furnace seems to indicate that God uses our trials as refining fire to purify us, that there's a purpose to them. And his voice is like the roar of many waters. It's a description of God's voice out of Ezekiel 43. And so you just imagine John on the island of Patmos. He's grown accustomed to hearing the waves crash against the shoreline. And yet there's a booming voice that's like these waters even greater to drown them out. And... We appreciate that as Ezekiel describes God's voice, now John describes Jesus' voice, and it's the sound of the river of life that flows from the throne of God and the new heavens and the new earth, extending that river of life out. And his right hand, he holds seven stars. And God's right hand depicts his power and protection. It's the place of sovereignty and strength And that figure of holding stars may refer to Jesus' glory, even as Roman emperors could depict their kids on coins playing with stars to say, we're so great, our kids play with stars. But here we see that Jesus really does, and yet he defines who the stars are. They're messengers or angels of the seven churches. And so on the one hand, they could be the pastors of the seven churches that he holds in his hand to empower and protect. But probably behind that comes from Daniel 12. But behind that is probably also their angelic representatives, which is a a stirring truth that earthly churches have a counterpart in heaven, like a representation in heaven. Like Edmund Clowney in his book on the church says, we gather on earth because we're already gathered in heaven. Our status is to be around the throne of grace and there's a representation in heaven. So Christ holds these messengers, angels in his right hand to empower and protect them. And then from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. It comes from Isaiah 11, the prophecy of the Messiah to come who would strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. His word was that powerful that he would judge nations by his word and The two-edged sword was the sharpest weapon in the Roman arsenal. It's ascribed to Jesus' voice. Hebrews 4 speaks about it being sharp. And so with the other images of the high priest and the kingly person, we also see a prophetic sense here too. He's the great prophet, priest, and king. And his face is like the sun shining in full strength. It's again the Daniel 10 figure, but also John, Jesus' friend, who walked around with Jesus, was given a preview of this as he ascended the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and his face shone like the sun. The Father says, this is my son, listen to him. 
It's the glory of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. This is the one in control who is ascended into the control center of the universe and is in charge of all things on behalf of his church. He's coming to punish the church's enemies and purge the church of her infirmities. And this is how John needed to see Jesus, to face what John had to face. And it's really overwhelming to think that this exalted one is the very one who humbled himself to be born in a manger. That he would become vulnerable and defenseless as that him stanza says our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. And this is the one that John is saying is the same toward us in heaven as he was toward us on earth. And already the descriptions of him indicate that. But just think of three other things along with this about how Jesus demonstrates the continuity and the completion of what he started at Christmas. The continuity and the completion of what he started in Christmas from his ascended glory in heaven. Three points are that Jesus descends, that he directs, and he defeats. First, he descends. So when John sees this revelation of the glorified Christ, he falls at his feet as though dead. And you know, this happens over and over in scripture when people see God. And so the question for us is, you know, am I undone like that? Do I see Jesus like that? Does it overwhelm me? There's no greater sight than the glory and grace of Christ. And when John falls on the ground as though dead, Jesus so graciously, this exalted person, reaches down to John and places his right hand on him. That right hand of power and protection, that right hand that holds stars, he lays that right hand on John and John is suffering at Patmos. The church John is concerned about is suffering intense persecution. John lays his right hand on, Jesus, Jesus lays his right hand on John as if to say, look, I'm here. With all I am, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm in control. I've got you. Isaiah 41.10, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen you, yea, I will help you, yea, I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And we can say even more, Ed Hartman, former missionary we support, supported, family of the pots, a friend of ours, he asked this question, a sermon I appreciate, he says, if, 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 if John fell down as though dead and Jesus laid his hand on him, what did Jesus have to do to be able to do that? What did this glorified person have to do to put his hand on a man who'd just fallen down dead? Well, he had to descend. He had to stoop. He stooped down to comfort and care for his struggling friend, John, his best friend, John. 
And really, that's what we marvel at over Christmas. We marvel at a God who stoops. The Christ hymn, Philippians 2, presents it just best of all, that the one who is in the very nature God emptied himself of divine prerogatives by taking the form of a servant, made in the form of man, obeying unto death, even death on a cross. He just keeps going down, stooping lower and lower. From the heights of heaven, he stoops to the cross itself. But we can say that all through his life, he stooped. He he stooped to be born in a cattle stall. He stooped by having to flee from Herod. He stooped by growing up poor. He stooped by growing up in Nazareth of all places. He stooped by having to live with sinners. He stooped by riding on the dirt when the woman caught in adultery was accused. He stooped to carry his own cross. He stooped to take our curse. It's I always have to mention the C.S. Lewis illustration of the incarnation when he says Jesus is like this great strong man that he sees this enormous, very heavy, complicated burden. Maybe it's a cart that the wagon is broken and he sees this complicated burden and he has to stoop to lift it up. He almost disappears under the load in order to incredibly lift it up, straighten his back, and march off with it on his shoulders. He's the God who stoops. And yet, in our passage, we see that though the incarnation is God doing something he had never done before, taking on himself human nature, that the motive, the character behind the incarnation is something that God has always been and always will be. He is the God who stoops. The incarnation is just the most dramatic display of that. But his very character is to humble himself, to serve and lift up others, to show goodness and grace and love, to pour himself out for others. It's his nature. And John, who was so close to Jesus in his earthly ministry, the disciple whom Jesus loved in verse five, when he wants to talk about his best friend, he says, to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He's the one who loved us. I know that. And then when he hears the voice and he turns to see the voice, what he first sees is the golden lampstands, which is the image of the church. And within the golden lampstands, it's really incredible that he first sees the lampstands, meaning that in all of history, the most important thing to God is his church. And walking among the lampstands with The church to purify and protect is the one who loves us and stoops to care for us even to the point of shedding his blood to redeem us. And so we see, even exalted in the heights of heaven, he's still the savior who stoops. We overcome because Jesus stoops to strengthen and bless us when we need it. And he directs, second, he directs. 
And so Ed Hartman, again, has a great insight here. I've appreciated it a lot this week. And he says, you know, John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. And uh, he's doing the right thing at the right time. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's worshiping God on the day of Jesus' resurrection, the first day of the week, Sunday. He's abiding by Jesus' command that John also said that we should worship him in spirit and truth. He's doing the right thing at the right time, worshiping God on the day consecrated to Christ. Yet, interesting that the voice like a trumpet comes from behind him. such that he was looking in the wrong direction. The voice is behind him. It's such that when he turns, verse 12 says he has to turn twice to underscore the fact that the voice was behind him, not in front of him, where he was looking. And so what's the significance of this? We could say a lot, but maybe behind this is Isaiah 30. In Isaiah 30, God is warning Israel that you are trying to fix this thing on your own. You're talking about going to Egypt, escaping, you're, 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 you're teetering on worshiping idols, judgment is coming, but then he comes with a promise of restoration and he says this, and that the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore but your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. It seems that that's happening with John. The sense is that after God comes in grace to restore his people that when they get confused, when they get on the verge of taking matters into their own hands, when they're about to get off track, when they're drifting into disobedience, when they're tempted to compromise with the world, at that point, they'll hear a voice behind them saying, no wait, this is the way, walk in it. And it's a picture of Jesus's shepherding, guiding, leading, nurturing care keep us on the right path. It's a picture of Jesus's correcting grace when we, when we failed again, we made a bad decision, when we drifted. You can imagine John being uncertain and confused about what's going on, what's going to happen, and Jesus, in the words of Isaiah 30, is saying, my voice is coming behind you. This is the way, and I'm gonna show you, walk in it. Zechariah has this outburst of praise that we read this morning, that David read this morning. And part of what the Messiah would do is guide our feet in the way of peace. And he did that in his earthly ministry, and we do see that from heaven, he keeps shepherding you when you get off track. We overcome because not only did Jesus do that in his earthly ministry, he continues to do that in heaven for us. When we get it wrong, go astray and fail again. Look, this is the way, walk in it. And then finally, Jesus defeats. When Jesus lays his hand on John, he says to him, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. 
I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I had the keys of death and Hades. In verse eight, God said, I am the alpha and the omega. And now Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. In Revelation 22, he's gonna say, I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. What's said of God is said of Christ. That he's enough for you. He's the God man for you. All of this at your service and need. And what I especially love in this passage is that he holds the keys to death and Hades. That which would make you most afraid. And so when you have your keys to your house or your keys to your car, you know they're yours. They belong to you. And when you sell your house or when you sell your car, it's this weird moment, even though you wanna do it, when you hand those keys over. And that house you had so many memories in, that car you enjoyed to drive, it's not yours anymore. You just handed it over. And in a real sense, the devil had the keys to death in Hades. And he used it to terrorize us. That that's the end, that darkness is our future. And yet Christmas is that Jesus came down to get the keys. He came down to take the keys from the evil one. He takes the keys by suffering the penalty of your sin in full. He takes the keys by triumphing over the devil, by taking the sentence of our sin and satisfying it himself. The devil lost his authority, lost his ability to hold it over our head and accuse us. And in that moment, he triumphs over him by taking the wrath for us and resurrecting from the dead. The grave had to open up and let him go because he conquered the sentence. And when he did that, the devil, he didn't want to, but he had to hand over the keys. He liked having death in Hades. And he handed them over to Jesus. And I've loved thinking about that this past week. Because death belongs to Jesus. And Jesus just walks with us through that pathway, opening that gate into glory to be with him. Because even as he's with us, as the lamp stands on earth, he desires to be with us where he is in glory. You know, the good news for us is that we overcome in this world because Jesus is in heaven as he was on earth. And he stoops, he descends, he, he directs and he defeats. And he does that on your behalf because he carries you all the way there. He's enough for it. And might that encourage your hearts this Christmas. Amen. Let's stand.